All right, Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Last week we did the second half of 9 and 10 and 11, and we did them together because there was a thread. Does anybody remember the thread that connected all of them? Say it again. God disperses the people. So the thread was all three sections beginning in halfway through chapter 9 all the way through the end of 11. God is dispersing his people. And we said actually we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and see God wanting his people to disperse. So that was the link that we had last week. Well, last week we talked about Noah and his tent. This week we're going to tackle 10 and 11 together. And I just want to give you one like idea of how it's broken down so you can be looking as we read this because I would guess that if on Monday morning you would open your Bible and look for something to feed your soul and to connect with God and you got to chapter 10, you would probably skip it. (laughs) So let me give you something and then uh, uh, Elspeth's going to read and Renee are going to read. They're going to split the reading in half as they tackle some of these fun names that I would not even try to enunciate, pronounce. So let me just give you one quick handle. So chapter 10 is genealogy, okay? It's going to be about Japheth's family, Ham's family, and Shem's family. And then chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 are the story that maybe we're more familiar with, the story of the Tower of Babel. And then we're going to go back to the second half of Shem's genealogy and finish it out all the way to Abraham. So just want you to notice, you've got two genealogies. And sandwiched in the middle is this story of the Tower of Babel. And there's probably a reason for that, but I have no idea what it is. (laughs) Maybe we'll figure it out together. So let me pray, and then Renee and Elspeth, if you guys want to come and read this for us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we have in our hands your very words to us. There are things in every chapter that are for us. They're to show us things about you, how you operate on the earth, who you are, your priorities, your character, your grace, your justice. It's all in there. And there's also stuff in here about us and our hearts and our lives and what happens when we wake up tomorrow morning and have to face the world and live in it in a way that pleases you. And so it's all in here. And we believe that even in chapter 10, there's stuff that's going to help us that's going to shed light on how we think about our lives and how we think about you. And so, Spirit, do that work. I know that all of us in here, um, our souls feel like they need something different. Um, And so, God, I pray that you would use uh, this little time together to meet each person individually where they sit, that they would encounter you as the living God, and that you would reward them for gathering here this morning to seek your face and to listen to what, you, to what you have to say. And so, Spirit, I pray for your help as I preach this morning, that it would be accurate theologically, and that it would be Spirit-filled and joyful. And so, Spirit, come and help us, even as we begin this little reading this morning, which would be easy for our minds to drift. I pray, God, you would help us to understand what's being read, help us to believe what's being read, help us to love what's being read, and then please help, it, help us to take it into our lives and to, and to live it out the way you want us to. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys ready? Thank you. Nope, nope. All right. Got my little pronunciation key here, so. (laughs) I was practicing at home. My kids thought I was chanting, so. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. (laughs) Hopefully I can do it half as good as Mark did last week, so. All right, Genesis chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elijah, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, 
Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rehamah, and Sabtika, the sons of Rehamah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kauna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, Calah, and, and Rezin between Nineveh and Calah. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kaslaim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Geza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpashag, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Sheleth, Hazar Maveth, Zerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abamel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. <clears throat> when Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad, 500 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 
403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And, Re and Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Shereg. And Reu lived after he fathered Shereg 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shereg had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Shereg lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The, names of, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. All right, here we go. Chapter 10. So when we read all this, I want to just encourage you, what we're looking for is what is God doing? Right? If we come to God's word and we approach God's words, we're looking for what God is doing and how God's doing it. It, it helps us to see the character of God. We learn the personality of God. So let's try, to, let's try to do some of that even as we work our way first through chapter 10. So chapter 10 shows how the people are dispersed. Do you guys catch that? So verses 1 through 5 are about Jabeth. So these are Noah's sons. And then in verse 6 to 20, it's all about Ham, right? It's verse 6, the sons of Ham. And then when you get down to verse 21, it, it begins the story of Shem and all of his descendants. Now what I want you to notice is how each one of these ends. So look at verse 5. We get to the end of Japheth's story, and it says, verse 5, From these the coastland peoples spread. So these are coastland people. They spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Now look at verse 20. How does Ham's genealogy end in verse 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Look at verse 31. This is how Shem's line ends. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So from these three dudes grow 70 nations if you were to count them. Now what I didn't know, just because I'm ignorant, was that the, like, I read these names like, oh, this is a bunch of names, and who knows who they were, and nobody knows anything about them. Well, I found out, no, actually, we know a lot about them, that through ancient uh, historians and, and guys like Josephus wrote stuff, and through archaeology, we actually know exactly where most of these people landed. So we have a map we're going to show you. When I saw this, I said, oh, now, it's, now I'm kind of getting what's going on here. So you can see where Ham's family, where they all congregated. This is where they went, and they have an idea through archaeology exactly where they were, give or take some. The same with Shem. You see where Shem is over here? Above Arabia. And then we have Japheth up top. So this is, this is where all the people end up going, the 70 nations from three men that are then also traced back through Noah. So you should be able to look at that, and all of us are related in some way because we all go back through one of those three and then end up going through Noah and then going in through Adam. So we're all related through Adam. We're also all related through uh, Noah, and then many of us are probably related through maybe one of them, if we all come from, or if you and I come from one of them, so I probably came through the line of Japheth. So I know that I'm probably linked through there, probably. Maybe not, but most likely that's where my 
lineage goes. So you can look at that and we can see like this is, this is real stuff. Like if it was back then, like, oh yeah, we know where all these people ended up. There, there's, there's where they're at. They're spread out. They've dispersed the places that God called them to disperse. So there's the first thing we just need to look at. These are real people and we are related through them. The other thing I want you to see, not from the map, but in your Bible, is this. That when you get to the story of Shem, this is what's interesting, the story of Shem, you notice that when you get down in verse 25, there's a guy named who? Erber, or Herber, or it's where we get the word Hebrew. So when the Hebrews come, they're going to come through this man, Herber, Eber. But we notice when he has two sons, right? He's got two sons. One is Joktam, and the other is Peleg, Pegleg. That's not his name. It's Peleg. Okay, so what happens is the story continues through Joktam here in Shem's line. And then there's this interruption to tell us about a tower story. And then it goes back to Shem, only now it traces all the way through a guy named Peleg in verse 16. Do you guys see that? This helped me. Do you understand what's happening? I want you to track with this. I think it's significant. I'll tell why in a second. So if you look at verse 25 of chapter 10, you've got Eber. Eber has two sons. One's name is Peleg. The other's name is Joktam. And it says now the earth is divided. If you see that in verse 25, then we follow Joktam's family line all the way through the end of chapter 10. We get the Tower of Babel story. And then we pick up with Shem's line, only now it's through the line of Peleg, as seen in verse 16. Is everybody's head spinning? All right. Mine's spinning also. Okay, so, why? So this is why I've been, like, beating my head all week. Why interrupt the genealogy with this story of the Tower of Babel? Why sandwich this story there? So let me use some other words and tell me if maybe it'll help you to figure out why. Why separate all of the people that spread out on the face of the earth from these people who are going to lead to Abram? Why divide them, if that's what it says in chapter 10, verse 25? Why are they divided? Why are they distinguished? Why would you set them apart in a different place in the genealogy and separate them by the story? Do you get where I'm going? <laughs> right? Is not this going to be the Hebrews? It's going to be Abram and Abraham's family line. And so, God, through Moses, structures these stories and deliberately says, I'm going to separate this line that's going to lead to the Hebrews from every other nation with this story about a tower of Babel. Does that make sense? I think it's symbolic. I think we're supposed to read it and go, you were supposed to ask, why did you interrupt the genealogy? Why would you separate them this way? Well, because God's people are going to be separated this way. And there's things in the Tower of the Story of the Tower of Babel that are going to show us how they're distinguished that way. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking? So as you read it, you should be asking questions. Why are they separated? I think that could be why they're separated. He's trying to tell us something about the separation. Now, there's one other thing in chapter 10 I want to draw our attention to, and that is this. There's one person that we get a little more detail about in chapter 10. Did you notice that? Nimrod. Nimrod. I wanted to name my son Nimrod. Mighty hunter before the Lord. Some think that he was actually was a hunter of man, not animals. So maybe that would change whether or not you want to name your kid Nimrod. I don't know. But he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And then we learn this about Nimrod. We don't read this about anybody else. We don't get these kind of details. He's a mighty hunter before the Lord. They had an expression back then. Oh, he's like Nimrod, the mighty hunter. But then it says in verse 10 something interesting. Chapter 10, verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom. His kingdom was Babel. So his kingdom. So this is the first time we've got somebody who is now basically establishing their own kingdom. He wants to be his own person. He's this mighty hunter, and he's going to gather people together as part of his kingdom, which is the kingdom of Babel, which I think is related to chapter 11. So as we get to chapter 11, Nimrod could be the one leading the charge in building this tower and this city. Does that make sense? All right, so... Now we transition. He, he, he gives us this link to leap into chapter 11, which begins making no sense whatsoever. Because <laughs> chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now the whole earth had... And we answer, No, it doesn't. 
we just read that it didn't have one language. So what's happening here? Well, I think part of that is the interruption of the story to make the point that God's people would be separate. And the other is, this is like a flashback. Have you guys watched a movie where like all of a sudden you start in the scene and you're like, whoa, what's happening? I don't know. And then you get sucked in and then all of a sudden they go back 10 years and you're like, oh, they're going to fill in what happened up to that moment. And at the end of the movie, you go back to that moment where the movie started. That's what's happening. The author is trying to get our attention. He's trying to get us involved in the story. He's like, I'm going to tell you part of the story and then I'm going to tell you why it happened. Why did the people disperse what was the cause what, what made it actually happen and so here we go chapter 11 verse 1 the whole earth had one language this is this is what happened just prior to chapter 10 a little flashback moment let's see what happened in order for the people to disperse the way that they did and so here's what we're going to see in this story so we're going to look at 11 1 through 9 we're going to spend most of our time here this morning that little story can be divided very easily in half it slices right in half very nicely the story of the tower of babel the first four, verse, four verses are all about what the men and women, what the people are doing and saying. And then verses 5 through 9 are all about what God does and says. Does that make sense? Can you kind of see that? You look in your Bible, it splits right in half almost perfectly. We get to eavesdrop in on a conversation the people are having. And then they try to do stuff and they start to do stuff. And in the second half, we get to ease in on a conversation God is having. And then we get to see what God does. So that's kind of how this story unfolds for us. So let's, let's jump in. Let's see how it unfolds. Let's listen in this morning on this private conversation these people are having in verses 3 and 4. And see what we can learn from it. What God has for us from it. So here we go. Let's, let's look at verses 3 and 4. This is what it says. And they said to one another. So these people who have now settled. Uh, they are settled in Shinar. And they say to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumore, bitumen for mortar. And they said, so they're still talking, we're listening in, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So that's it. That's what they say. And we know from the end of the story that they started the process, because God's going to interrupt them in the middle of the process. They start this building program. So let's just talk about this, what happened so far in the story. It begins with them making brick. So is there anything wrong with making brick? No. They're actually doing what God told them to do, right? In Genesis 1, it was... It was subdue the earth take the raw resources of the earth and create with it build with it do things with it so they're doing exactly what god had told adam and eve to do so second question is there anything wrong with tower building does god say anywhere prior to this limit your buildings to three stories no so i conclude there's nothing wrong with tower building it seems like we should be okay with the fact that they went ahead and they built this tower now, some speculate because this tower supposedly is going to reach where? Heaven. So some people speculate that that is symbolic. In other words, we're going to make our own way to heaven. We'll get there on our own. We'll build a building and somehow we'll jump off into heaven. It was like this symbolic picture of man will do it his way. God may have his way for people to get to heaven. We're going to create our own way to heaven. Others have said, speculating, that they would build this tower and the goal was that their priest would go to the top and he would sacrifice animals to the gods and he'd be closer to the gods in order to appease them and so they wanted the tower to be tall up into the heavens. Others have said that the, that the mortar on the outside of this tower was made out of butamin, which was the same stuff that Noah used for his ark. And so what they really were doing was they were building this huge tower. They were going to cover it in this stuff so it was watertight. So if God flooded the earth again, they could go in and hide and stay safe. People say these things. Now, I'm not sure if any of these are true. And the reason is because I think the people tell us, as we listen into their conversation, why they're building the tower. <laughs> Look at verse 4. It's pretty clear. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. So the reason for building the tower is so that they can make a name for themselves. They want to make a name for themselves. Now, we got to ask a question. Is there anything wrong with people wanting to make a name for themselves? Before we answer too quickly, <laughs> look over at Genesis 12. 
Look at Genesis 12. Let me just read verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So God's not necessarily against people's names being great, but let's distinguish between how they wanted their name to be great and how God was making Abraham's or Abram's name great, right? God is the one saying to Abram, I'm going to make your name great, not the people saying we're going to make our name great. That's the first distinction. Distinction. The second is that God is making Abram's name great so that the nations will be blessed. But that's not exactly the reason why they want their name to be great, is it? I think verse 4 is the key to understanding what's going on. Why do they want their name to be great? So they, aren't, they don't get what? Dispersed. So why is it wrong that they don't want to be dispersed? Because <laughs> everywhere up to this point, pre-flood, post-flood, what is God saying to them? Go out, disperse yourselves all over the place. So the point of the story is not shame on you for building a tower, even shame on you for wanting to make a name for yourself. The point of the story is they're disobeying God's clear command. That's what's wrong with the story. The issue here is that they're rebelling against God and not, not filling the earth. And it's interesting because in Genesis so far, God's not really made that many clear commands, right? Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. So what do Adam and Eve do? They eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. The only other command we have really is God telling Noah, build the ark. He got that one right. That was good. And then the next command is, hey, disperse everywhere and fill the earth. And what do people do? Nah. No, I don't think I want to do that. I think I want to do something different. I want to do it my way. I mean, this is just literally, if, if we went back, and I, which I'm not going to do because of time, and read you all the times up until this point where God had said, disperse, go out into the world, spread out, fill the earth, you would go, this is just direct rebellion. This is in your face, God, not going to do what you're telling us to do. So if you tell us to spread out, we're going to do whatever it takes necessary. In this case, we're going to build a tower so our name will be great and everyone will want to congregate to us and with us. I'm going I'm to illustrate this in a minute, but this is human heart 101 in action here. Let's build this building, and everyone will see how great we are. And then they'll want to gather together, and they'll want to be a part of it, and they won't go anywhere. They'll see our creative building skills. That We invented this thing called the brick, and it's amazing. We know about architecture, and so we can build something very high to the sky. And people from all around are going to go, whoa, look what they did. And they're going to come, and they say, we want to be a part of you because you're impressive. And so they're going to join the club, and everyone's going to stick together. Now, this really happened to me. I'm not making it up. Two weeks ago, when I was preparing this passage with the other passage, I had a conversation with someone, and the conversation led to them sharing with me how thrilled they were that in their life they'd been part of several church building programs. And I kid you not, the way they talked about it was so parallel to this, it was almost frightening. They said things to me like, yup, as soon as a church builds, buys land and starts to raise money and they get a campaign going, the people join together and they're unified and it gives them purpose and it gives them identity and then they all join together for something great. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like that's exactly what's happening here in the story. Listen, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with building campaigns or building buildings, but what should unify a church? Jesus and the gospel had better unify our church. So people say, where do you go to church? Don't tell them in a gym behind Mount Airy Full Gospel Church. <laughs> Don't even tell them Christ Church. Say, I get together with groups of people who love Jesus. And they want to please Jesus. And they want to know Jesus because he's really great. Make him the center of the conversation. And, and I wonder how many of us have experienced this. I've seen it happen. When a church does finish their building in their brand new building, they immediately grow. I've talked to pastors whose churches have doubled in size within months of finishing their building, going from one service to three almost overnight. And my question is, where were those people before the building was done? And why did they come? Because it's new. It's exciting. We want to be a part of the successful church that's, that seems to be on the move and, and doing great things. I just want you to see that our hearts aren't that different than theirs. <laughs> it's not. They knew what they were doing. They're like, hey, if we do something impressive, people will stick around. We'll make a name for ourselves, and we'll all be glued together, and we'll do it all in defiance against God. <laughs> do you see that? 
Again, nothing wrong with building programs. Church is building buildings, just observing the human heart and how my heart resonates with what they did here in this whole idea of building a tower so they could have a name for themselves so they wouldn't disperse and everyone would be so excited about them they would stick together. So there's the first part of the story. So what does God do? So we come to the second part. Now we get to listen in on what God says. God is going to have a conversation with God. It's kind of funny. God's going to have a conversation with God, so we get to listen in on that, and then we get to see what God does in response to what they did. So let's look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. All right, now this is where the story gets really fun. Have you ever tried to one-up somebody? You know, they tell their almost drowning story, so you tell yours, I really did drown story, or whatever it is. <laughs> whatever it is, they tell their story, you try to, like, oh Yeah? That's what God is doing here. This is the parallelism in this story. As soon as I started to like see what God was doing, God is basically going to take everything they said or do, and he's going to match it, and sometimes even just one-up them. He's like, okay, you're doing that? Okay, I'll do that. You think this? Let me share something with you that's a little more impressive. So this, that's what he does. Is it's almost comical, really, when you read it, how God puts them in their place and magnifies him, himself through this story. So basically everything they say in 1 through 4, God has something else to match it in verses 5 to 9. So let me see if I can show them to you. The first one is this. Did you notice this, this repeated phrase, come? Look at verse 3. The people say, come, let us make bricks. Verse 4, the people say, come, let us build. So what does the Lord say in verse 5? And the Lord came down. And then look at verse 7. God says, come, let us go down. It's almost like he heard them what they were going to do. They said, come, let's go do this. Come, let's go do that. And so God says, all right, well, come, let us do this. And come, let us do that. You see the repetition? In the Hebrew, it's even closer than that because the words sound very much the same. If I said them, you would go, which word did he just use? Because they're the same in the four verses that are there. So the people are coming together to defy God. So God comes together so that he can come down. So there's the first thing, just that play on words. The second is this. It is the word us. So, same thing, verse 3, come let us, the people say. Verse 4, come let us, the people say. And so what does God do in verse 7? Come let us. Like he just said, hey, here's what I'm going to do. Or in God said, come, I'm going to, no. He lets us eavesdrop on his conversation with the Trinity, with themselves. And he says, oh yeah, well, come let us come down, and then they're going to do what they're going to do. So man gathers together to discuss their rebellion against God, and then God says, well, I'm going to come together too, and I'm going to have a plan to shut down your little building program. <laughs> Verse 3 is another parallel. Verse 3 is another one. The people say they're going to build a building with its top in the heavens. That's verse 4, right? The top's going to go to the heavens. And so what does God say in verse 5? And the Lord came down. So they're building a building to the heavens, but for God to see it, what does he have to do? He's got to come down. Look at verse 7. He repeats it. Come, let us go down. So it's, it's really, it's comical. God decides to pay man a visit to see what he's doing, but in order to do it, he has to get together with the Trinity, and they have to go down in order to even observe the puny thing that they're building together. It, it just reminds you of the verse where it says in the Psalms, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, <laughs> right? I'm just hanging out up here and, oh, down between my two toes, I see something. Another thing God does, I, I think this is just amazing and funny and help put me and God in our places, him where it should be in mind, reminded. Verse 5. Catch verse 5. The language of verse 5, I think, is meant to make us laugh. And the Lord, all caps, do you see that? Came down to see the city and the tower, which, who? The little children. It doesn't say little, I added that. The children of man had built. Okay, God, why? Why are we adding the word children? They could have read, and the Lord came down to see the 
city and the tower which man had built. Why does God throw in the children line? Why do you think God's throwing in the children line? Uh, They're like a bunch of little kids playing with Legos. God's saying, you're a bunch of little kids down there, you're playing with your bricks. But I under him, I am the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, self-existing, eternal Jehovah Yahweh, little children. You see what he's doing? He's putting everything in its place. He's giving everything its significance the way it should be. He does recognize, it's sort of interesting, he recognizes that physically... It is insignificant what they have made, right? He recognizes that they didn't accomplish something, and he says to them, this is only the beginning of what you will do in rebellion against me, is what it is interpreted, I think, to mean. And then he says, and that nothing they will do in disobedience will be impossible for them. In other words, they're going to keep doing this over and over again against the Yahweh, against the one who rules over everything. So what does God do? Right? First, he basically gives them a verbal shakedown, putting everyone in their place as to what's going on. And then what does he do to, make, to man's blatant rebellion in verse 7? What's his approach? What's he going to do to stop it, to correct it, to judge them, to bring justice? What's he do in verse 7? A couple more people say it. Good, yeah. He's going to confuse their language. I want you to notice that dispersing them over the face of the earth is not going to be the punishment. That's the plan from the beginning. The punishment is God confusing their language. Now, you and I have read this story too many times. Because if we hadn't, if this is our first time, you and I would scratch our head and go, Well, that's a strange way to break up the party. We would go, what? Why that? Like, we read it and go, of course, Tower of Babel, languages. No. We would scratch our head and go, why? Why? Man is intentionally, actively, defiantly rebelling against God's clear command. And God responds in a way that really causes very little pain. He strikes their ego, but that's really it. The punishment does not seem to fit the crime. I mean, think about it. If God gives you one command, really, and that's, I, that's really the only one they have, very clear, and you went to God and said, I'm not doing it. I'm doing my own thing. I'm going to do it my way. I'm not listening. In fact, I'm going to rebel against you 100% and do my own thing. And God's response is, I'll mix up your language. Now, you guys know that God has some other options in his tool belt. Does he not? So I hope we feel the grace in this. We need to feel the grace of God and the fact that he chooses to mix up language as the consequence for their blatant rebellion against him. After all, he could have sent fire from heaven, a practice that God will have later. Just burn him up. You're going to rebel against me? I'm going to teach you a lesson. I never said I wouldn't burn the earth up again. I just said that I wouldn't drown you, so I'm going to send the fire. He could have done plagues. I'll actually disperse you. I'll give each of you different plagues, and then you will take your disease or whatever it is, and you will go off with your people group. Let's use that. Let's use diseases. I'll give you all different diseases. Some of you will have scars all over your body and, and boils. And another group, I'll make you cough nonstop and you can't resist. And then you'll go off with your group. I'll divide you up with that way. He could have used drought, starvation, famine, little pockets of food in different places. that People would disperse to those. The ground could have split open, swallowed them whole. I mean, would you not expect something like that to happen in light of the fact that they're shaking their fist in God and direct defiance to his one command? So God has options, and I think this option is a pretty gracious option. Instead of the Trinity coming up with something that would have brought destruction, he does this unique, unexpected, and seemingly random thing. I'm going to mix up your language. I'm going to confuse your language. And according to verse 8 and 9, it works. So we get to listen in or watch what God does. Verse 8 and 9, 
So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. So mission accomplished. They left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Mission accomplished. Not necessarily through the least path of resistance. So what do we learn from this? What do we take away from this? Let me just give you a couple of things. And this is this. The first is, please recognize how all of us rebel against God's commands. All I could think about when I was reading this this week was Paul saying, the very thing that I want to do, I don't do, and the very thing I don't want to do, I do. And I think at times we do those things deliberately. So I would just say be suspicious of your heart. Be suspicious. Because in us, deep in us, there is something still, even when we've been born again, that makes us a little hesitant or perhaps rebellious against God's clear commands. That's the first thing. The second thing here is there's very good news. God is very gracious in not giving them what they deserve. I mean, they, they, have, they deserve death for what they've done. Treason against their king. But God gives them a second chance, changes their language, and sends them off in their own nations. There's grace there. Kindness of God giving second chances. Third thing. Nothing not even the rebellious heart of man can stop God's plan. God's going to do something, and it's his plan. Man's rebellion cannot stop it. His plan was to scatter the people, and then to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. And so what does God do when man tries to get in the way and stop it? He still scatters the people. So God is on his throne, completely on his throne. So I think those are takeaways. If we only had the story, we'd stop here. But we don't. We have more. This is what's absolutely crazy, is you and I live on this side of the cross. And so there's another story that completely parallels this story. I mean, crazy parallels this story in the New Testament. And that's why I asked you to bring your Bibles this morning and not just your journals there's another story in redemptive history that parallels this story and reverses this story. It parallels the story and it simultaneously flips this story upside down and redeems it for the glory of God. It's almost like the Tower of Babel is God's mission plan part one. And then we're going to look at the book of Acts where it becomes the mission plan part two. Where he actually just flips this story completely on its head for the good of the nation. So you got to turn to Acts. I'll try to move through this quickly. But you got to look at this. I think it's going to go on the screen too. Think about all the things we just saw. I mean, you, you can't study Babel and not go here. You can't. You're going to miss so much. And I'm not going to get to all of you either. I had so many more things I thought about that I was like, oh, that parallels the story too that I'm not even going to say. Is that your job this week? So verse 6 of Acts 1. Check this out. This is Jesus after he's raised from the dead. He gathers with the disciples. Acts 1.6. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So dispersion, spreading people out, getting people out to the very ends of the earth. Does this not sound familiar? Matthew 28, go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So this is the plan. It's go out to these nations that I've scattered now, people, but don't do it until you already have the power of the Holy Spirit. So flip over to chapter 2. And let's look at parallels here. Chapter 2, verse 1, the day of Pentecost. They've waited for the Holy Spirit to come. And here's what happens. Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house <clears throat> where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, in other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from 
every nation under heaven. I mean, this is crazy. They're all there. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. That word is, could be translated, they were confused. <laughs> kind of funny. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished. I love these words. They're bewildered. They're amazed. They're astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then they give us a little list. Like, I'm, just, I'm, I'm reading this list. I'm going, here we go again. A little genealogy, a little, a little map going on here. Uh, Parthians and Medes and Emilites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And others thought they were drunk. <laughs> Which just, man will come up with any excuse to not believe God's on the move. What a crazy story. Jesus gives them a command, go to the end of the earth. There's only one thing, one barrier stopping them from going to the end of the earth with the gospel. And what is it? language. So what does he do? He sends the Spirit and gives them the languages so they can go do what he's called them to do, to spread out on the earth. Do you see how God here is reversing Babel? It literally is a reversal. He's redeeming the story of the Tower of Babel. At Babel, languages were confused to fulfill God's mission. At Pentecost, languages became clear to fulfill God's mission. The reversal there's a reversal of Genesis 11. He's redeeming 11. In Genesis 11, God confuses languages so people will scatter to the ends of the earth. In Acts, God unconfuses languages, if there's such a word, so people will scatter to the ends of the earth. In Genesis 11, God confuses languages so they can't build a tower. In Acts, God gives them a common language so they can build a church. In Genesis 11, God confuses language so they can't make a name for themselves. And in Acts, God reverses the language confusion so the ends of the earth will be amazed and astonished at the name of Jesus. I mean, this is just amazing. God flips judgment into blessing. God loves these reversal stories, this least expected, look what I'm going to do, taking the disaster, if you will, of getting people to spread by screwing up their languages in Genesis, and now I'm going to flip it the other way around and bring a blessing to the nations. <laughs> it is amazing. Amazing. And this is not what God does even in the, in the crucifixion of Christ. He flips judgment on Jesus into blessing for us, judgment into grace. I mean, this is the gospel, right? Jesus' judgment is flipped into our blessing. Jesus' death is reversed into resurrection grace. The Father turns his face from Christ so he doesn't have to turn his face from us. The Father abandons Jesus so you will never be abandoned. The Father pours his wrath out on Jesus so you never have to fear his wrath on you. I mean, it's all this just flipping things around that God loves to do. The opposites, the reversals, the redeeming power. I just think that the Tower of Babel story unfolds in God's eyes simultaneously to the book of Acts. He's like, oh, because he can see them all happening at once. He's watching the Tower of Babel story because he's not, not restrained by time, and he's simultaneously watching the Acts story. He's going, I can't wait to get there. I'm going to reverse all of this, and it's going to be great. I think they're meant to be read together and to be understood together. And so what do we expect to see then? We're in Acts 2. We expect as we turn the page of the scripture, we're going to see God's people going to the ends of the earth, right? If somebody spoke Italian on Pentecost, where are they going to go? New York. <laughs> if they speak Egyptian, they're going to go to Egypt, right? Well, guess what? <laughs> they don't. They don't. They do the exact same thing that people in Genesis 11 do. We don't find them spreading out at all until chapter 8. In fact, they all remain in Jerusalem. They don't scatter to Judea or to Samaria 
or to the ends of the earth until you get to chapter 8. And do you know what causes their scattering? Persecution. So let's just look very briefly at this. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approves of Stephen's execution. This is chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Go down to verse 4. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is next that Philip went to Samaria. We see in verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. And the, the gospel goes to Samaria. If you look at verse 14 of chapter 8, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word, surprise guys, we're down at verse 25. They were preaching the gospel to many villages of Samaria. And it goes on and on. The end of chapter 8 tells us they preached the gospel to all the towns until they came to Caesarea. And then in 931 it says that all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria was at peace because of the spread of the gospel. It took persecution for the gospel to spread to all these places and to all these people. Which you know what that is? That is just the fulfillment of that. Because what did God tell Abraham in chapter 12? I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations, all the families of the earth. And so you follow Paul's missionary journeys as he goes around to all these places. And the gospel, by the end of the book of Acts, is being spread everywhere. And God just stands there and goes, mission accomplished. And he looks down on today and he says, mission still being accomplished. Mission still underway. We've got to recognize that God uses persecution to scatter the people. He flips persecution upside down to get the gospel to go to the nations. In Genesis 10, he reverses, he's reversing confusion. And in Genesis 10, now here in Acts, he reverses it so that the mission will go to the ends of the earth. So persecution and confusion are the ways that God has moved his gospel forward. That doesn't sound like fun to me. And I don't want to say anything political, so you can read or not read into this as much as you do or do not want to. But just think for a moment. God uses persecution and God uses confusion to spread the gospel. See, we need a lens to read culture through. We need to look at the news and we need a lens we need to have God's perspective. We know how God works. Well, how does God work? Well, he seems to often use confusion. Go watch five minutes of the news. Confusion and persecution to advance his blessing to the nations. That should inform how we pray. I think that should inform what we think when we see the things unfolding in America and throughout the world. God is on his sovereign throne. He's in charge of all things, and he has a way of flipping persecution into blessing and flipping confusion into blessing in order to reach the nations. So church, God is on a mission, and you know that he's called us to join him on this mission. And the beauty of all of this is, is this story does not stop in Acts. And the story does not stop with us. Because there's one more verse we have to read this morning, and I'll close with this. This is in Revelation chapter 5. Because it doesn't end here. Yes, he's gathering the nations. But here is where we're headed, church. I don't know how long, but sometime soon, this is going to be for real in our lives. So Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. I think it's going to be on the screen. You can also follow along. I'm going to read this. Then I saw... In the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or the under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly 
because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lamb of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out on the all the earth. And he went and took the, the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its scroll. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Every tribe and language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, with all of, its, all of them say, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever, ever. Amen. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That is where the story is going. There's going to be another gathering of people from all the ends of the earth, and we're going to be there in the middle of it, and he's going to make a brand new people, a brand new family with all of us united with him. I mean, this is just more reversal. A lamb that looks like it's been slain that has the ability to open the scroll and see your name in it and my name in it because he's worthy of it. And then he's going to see the names of people from every tribe and every language and every nation. All have been ransomed by this lamb. And so until that day, what do we do? <laughs> we celebrate, we rejoice, we anticipate that day. And church, we realize that we are joining God on the same mission. And our prayer is that we will be faithful to scatter wherever he calls us to go. And that when we do go to the places he calls us to go, we do it with faith and with joy, ready to share the good news of what he's done for us with those from Woodbine and Mount Airy and Monrovia and to the ends of Frederick County and the ends of the earth. So may we wake up each morning seeing this story unfold from Genesis 10 through Acts, future Revelation, realize we're living between Acts and Revelation, and may we do our part to not wait for persecution. Let's not wait for it. To not wait for confusion in the church. Let us go because we want to go out of obedient hearts and not have God have to do something in order to get our butts moving, if they're not, and many of yours already are. I think they are, all are in some way, but may we respond to this good news and say, God, I want to be part of this scattering. I want to be part of bringing the good news to everyone that you bring into my life, every opportunity that I have. Amen. Amen. Right, I'm going to pray sing a song lord jesus thank you for your word oh lord so much here how absolutely amazing it is to see that we can look back thousands of years to a story something that really happened in the tower of babel and then we can fast forward ahead still in our past to acts see what you're doing and see how you still work the same way and your desires are the same. And then we can look into the future and see what you're doing and we just want to be part of your story. We are part of your story. And we just want to cooperate with what you're doing in your story through our lives. Our story is significant to you. And God, we want to live each day aware of where our story is headed to a time where we will join people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue around your throne 
And it's going to be insane. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be breathtaking. God, we're going to be free from all of our sin. And we're going to celebrate with you. We're going to get to do all the things we would have done on this earth, only do them without sin. Can't wait for that. (laughs) What a glorious eternity we have waiting for us. But Lord, we're stuck here for a while. And that's part of your plan, and I just pray you'd help us, God. Help us to be faithful as we go to the places that you send us each week and each day. Help us to be faithful, to not care about making a name for ourselves. But maybe we want to make a name for you. And we desperately need your help for, help for this Holy Spirit because we know our tendency is to want to make our name great and not yours. So Spirit, descend on us. Make us a little crazy for you so that we will want to tell others more about your name than we do about our own name. So come, Spirit, do that. Prepare us for that day and use us in the meantime, we ask. And Lord, we do pray that for all of the persecution and confusion that's happening in our world today, God, we ask that you would flip it upside down. God, even even this week, I pray we would see ways that you are flipping persecution. You're flipping all this confusion upside down so that people will come to know you and be saved, so your church will grow, so the ends of the earth will be reached, so that your name will spread. Oh God, do it. Do it. We know it's, it's part of your plan. We know it's in your character to do it. And so God, redeem the bad, redeem the wrong. Flip it upside down for your praise and your glory. Do good. Restrain evil. Have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.